we've been talking about some of the um, implications like tampon tax, other things, uh, products in schools. And I should say that, that I didn't become aware of how rampant period poverty is in the United States to the degree that um, women are having to trade sexual favors for money just to buy products. Um, we get a lot of reports of that. There are so many things happening all over the world, including in the US that um, equal access to uh, menstrual health in whatever way that comes would, would address. Sylvia and me. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, my name is Melissa Burton. I am a high school English teacher and producer of the film Period End of Sentence, which won an Academy Award in 2019 for best documentary short about menstrual equity, about the placement of a pad machine in a rural village in India, a sanitary pad making machine. I'm thrilled to be here. Hi, I'm Anita Diamond. Um, I am the author of several books. The most recent one is Period End of Sentence, the new chapter in the fight for menstrual equity, a book which came about because um, Melissa Burton and the Pad Project uh, in the after the afterglow of the, the Academy Award win contacted me to ask if I would be interested in writing a book inspired by their wonderful movie. And that's why I'm here today. And we are here at Sylvia and me. Melissa, Anita, thank you so much for being with me to, uh, today and taking the time because this is so important. And most of us don't even realize it. Um, you know, especially women in my day, uh, you got your period, you got your period. No one really ever talked about it. We talked about it as being our friend. Uh, not many of us used the word curse uh, at that time, but it's been known by many things. Before we start, I wanna go over some amazing statistics, which I know that both of you have talked about and Anita, you have them in, in the book. Uh, so if you let me, because I think that these need to be known. Uh, period poverty statistics. Many in the US are forced to make a terrible choice between buying food or menstrual products. A uh, 2019 study in St. Louis found that two thirds of respondents, all of whom were low income women, had not been able to afford period products at least once in the last year. And um, I support the girls, an organization with 50 US and foreign international affiliates reported a 35% increase in requests for products since the start of the pandemic. Uh, when you talk about students and the menstruation, Across the US, only 21% of elementary schools, uh, school students are taught about puberty, which means that many do not learn about menstruation until after their first period. One in five teens struggle to afford or not been able to purchase period products. 25% of teens have missed classes due to lack of access to menstrual products. This is the great one, the tampon tax. The tampon tax refers to the tax on tampons and menstrual products, which categorizes them as 
unnecessary or luxury items. They definitely are luxury. 30 <laughs> out of 50 states make tamp tampons subject to sales tax. In some states like Missouri, tampons are taxed at the highest luxury tax rate. Every state has a list of items that they deem as necessary. An example, Georgia has a tax on tampons, but not tattoos. Wisconsin has a tax on tampons, but not gun uh, memberships. Uh, and the price of menstruation is huge, which I'll let you gals go into. So the first thing I want to uh, go into, Melissa, the PAD project, can you tell us how that started? Because you're an English teacher. <laughs> so... Yeah, I would be glad to. I realized that in my self-introduction, I neglected to say that I'm the executive director for the PAD project, um, which began because I went with a group of students to the United Nations to serve as delegates to the Commission on the Status of Women, where you can be as young as 16 years old. And so my students were, they were in 11th grade. And um, we were there to advocate for equal access to education for all genders. It's through a program called Girls Learn International, for which I was the faculty advisor. And it was there that we learned about this issue that you were speaking of in your stats of period poverty. Um, that phrase, period poverty, actually was not even a phrase when my students and I first learned about um, girls and people around the world not having access to products or reproductive health education or a clean and safe way to manage their periods. And so we learned about it. We determined we were going to do something about it. We were in a partnership at the time with a Girls Learn International chapter in India with a nonprofit called Action India. Um, they had a community uh, that they were working with in the rural village of Kathikara in northern India who wanted a pad machine. And we also learned about Murugananthan, the inventor of the pad machine. And so we decided we were going to fundraise. We were going to do whatever it took. Uh, so some years in the making, but we managed to fundraise to get a machine to our partner community in northern India and also to get a young director, Rika Zatabshi, um, and a production crew in India to film it. Okay. And when you accepted the Academy Award, because from that you produced and directed period end of sentence. In your right. acceptance, you said a period should end a sentence, not a girl's education. You said it. Yay. And yes, that's true, <laughs> because who could imagine some of the things, as I said, you know, when I opened um, in my day, it, it wasn't it wasn't a known thing that maybe you didn't have any, you, you know, we would run out. Yes. Um, maybe the school had a, uh, not a tampon machine, everyone, you know, they, they had a machine in the bathroom, but you needed a quarter. You, you needed money in order to get something that was a necessity. So you turn to Anita from what I, to go further with this. And Anita, did you have any qualms about digging into this? 
Um, I didn't have qualms. I had actually written some uh, some op-eds about uh, menstrual inequality, um, both abroad and also um, locally. And I had been inspired by a local teenager who in her high school newspaper had written an, uh, an editorial saying that there should be free products in her in the bathroom in her school, just like there's free toilet paper. And so it had been on my mind and I tend to write about women's issues, women's health, women's well-being. And so, um, so I said, yes, what I didn't have any idea was, was the scope of this subject and how many aspects and how many, uh, what the history and um, the diversity of need and the diversity of problems and the intersection of so many problems around menstruation. So it was a little overwhelming once I started digging into it. So the challenge was figuring out how to get my arms around such a large subject, but in a way that was succinct and would um, get people to read from the beginning to the end of it. <laughs> well, I think you managed to do that. And some of the things that you went into, um, to me, are just absolutely amazing. Can you go uh, talk about a little bit of uh, the history and some of the the myths, almost like the voodoo? I mean, there's there's there are people in segments of civilization who uh, think that when women get their period, they are evil and they need to be put someplace else for the time that they have it. Can you go into some of those stories that are um, frightening? Um, well, I don't think that women are considered evil. I think they're considered um, that they there is a period of time where they pollute, they're potentially polluting everything around them. This is a very old idea and it's um, present in civilizations around the world. In most world religions, in fact, uh, tend to stigmatize women when they're on their period that they, they will, if you have a menstruating woman, she will curdle milk if she gets too close to it, the crops will wither uh, and so on and so forth. And the, these ideas continue to this day in some parts of the world, within great danger, there are some communities where women and girls, when they have their periods, are sequestered or sent out from their homes to sort of subsist for the course of their periods in really terrible conditions, uh, which would feel more like a prison than anything else. Um, in other places, women are just don't go in the kitchen when they're on their period. Nobody talks about it necessarily. It just happens that way. And it's based on this idea that it's not safe for the rest of the family if the menstruating person is touching food. Um, this is part of Western civilization in particular. <clears throat> um, it's in our religious traditions, as I said, Judaism, Christianity, uh, Islam, uh, Hinduism. These all have uh, strictures about when women can or can't be part of the larger community to lesser and greater extents. Uh, and, and that's still, even though people would say, oh, we're not, we don't do that, we're not like that. I think this lingers in the idea that you should not talk about this, that this is somehow a dirty subject. I mean, we can talk about erectile dysfunction on television yes, as much as we want to, but uh, really discussing menstruation, um, all those ads for ED, and uh, when you see an ad for menstruation, they're still, for the most part, spilling blue liquid on pads, as if people, women, people who menstruate bled blue as opposed to red. So it's still very much part of, uh, part of our uh, unexamined assumptions about who women are and what they can do 
and, and how we fit into the larger society. This is changing though. Well, a lot of things are, are changing as far as how we look at women because we're finally um, using our voice and people are starting to hear, but there's still some resistance. As you said, there was a high school student who, you know, there were some high school students who wanted free tampons and the principal didn't want to do it because he thought uh, the students would abuse the privilege of having to go in and use a tampon. Now, the uh, thing is, those are junior high school students. I want to just tell you, they are younger than high school students. <laughs> they're, they're 10, 11, 12 year olds who already have this consciousness that there was something wrong with that. So you should finish the story though. But I want you to know these are really young girls. Well, that's the thing. So how you, you say that the story is starting to get out there. And I think, Melissa, in what you did and, and that short, I think it was 45 minute documentary. 26 minutes. 26. Short. It was 26 <laughs> minutes. I'm sorry. 26. There was a 45, 20, 26 minute video was seen by millions. Um, and I think that made a huge impact in, in awareness now, a lot of times an impact will, will linger for a couple of weeks, maybe a month. We need, as what you're doing, we need to move this along and keep the conversation going. Uh, so how do you see this moving along? Um, the fact that there are women who, young girls who drop out of school, um, who do not... Uh, take certain jobs, uh, who lose out on so much because of the stigma, the poverty, uh, the unknown, the uneducated regarding their own bodies. How can we move this a little bit more forward? I think there are so many um, great nonprofits working in the menstrual equity space. The energy of like those young uh, junior high school students who, who made those cookies. And I think some of the statistics that you um, iterated in the beginning of this conversation, once people are more and more aware of, hey, I shouldn't be paying a sales tax on this. Hey, I should be entitled to having some products in my school or restaurant bathroom. Most, most people, once they become aware of it, will start to speak out more and more. And I think that we, with luck, you know, we'll see some of those statistics, I hope, start to change. Okay. Um, I know that there was one great thing in 2018. Um, Danielle Raleigh at the United Kingdom um, House of Commons walked in and said, please excuse me for my lateness. I have my, you know, my period um, and that it's cost her 20, an average of 25 pounds, uh, which uh, on a yearly cost is like something like uh, 500 pounds a year. And she brought that up. And nobody, no, from what I understand, nobody said, oh my God, what are you talking about? Oh my God, that's disgusting. How dare you? Yes, so. yes. It's a great story. You know, uh, you can imagine this 10 years prior, 
there weren't very many women on that in the House of Commons, but um, that young woman was a representative from Scotland, I want you to know. And Scotland has recently become the first country on the planet to mandate uh, free menstrual products in all public buildings throughout the country. Um, this has just recently passed. Um, they're in the process of uh, instituting it and figuring out how to do this in county by county. But that it is sort of the outlier, and uh, and Danielle Rowley was um, sort of the the first person to burst into the international stage with this. But since then, Scotland has done this remarkable thing, and other countries have started to institute laws where uh, schools, all schools, junior high school, high schools, and colleges are mandated to have period products. It's more complicated in the United States because we don't have that kind of national law. So this winds up being a state by state, city by city college by college, school system by school system uh, discussion. And it is happening. It's happening all over the country. And I just want to say that college students in particular from all kinds of colleges, not liberal Ivy League ones just, but from small um, uh, parochial schools in the Midwest, large statewide institutions, students on those campuses are demanding that there be period products in all of the school bathrooms. And they are having a lot of success. Uh, I don't know if that has something to do with the fact that there are more women in, in the administration of these places, or uh, perhaps it's just the justice of the, the request that has started to resonate. Well, uh, I'm sorry, but I'll put my two cents here. I think it's probably the fact that there are more women administrators <laughs> and more women going to school, um, you know, as students. So because it's a big business and you talk about the fact that it is a big business. Can you tell us, because you broke it down into three, uh, <laughs> three segments, big period, new period, and social enterprise period. What do you mean by that? Because I don't think people understand what a huge business this is. Oh, it's, it's a multi, multi-million dollar business around the world. I mean, we know the names of some of these organizations, you know, some of the big companies, Unilever, um, Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble have been in this business for, you know, 100 years. Uh, but their products have been um, pretty much limited. The advertising has been very discreet. And as women have become entrepreneurs uh, and they see places in the market where, um, for example, tampons are made with uh, materials that are not necessarily safe for the human body, they have created small businesses, which have some of them have grown to be quite big to have all natural products. Um, and this is happening all over the world, period. And then there's new products like period underwear, um, which is not just thinks, but there are, there are companies around the world, mostly started by young entrepreneurs who, a lot of them with a Kickstarter campaign, have started companies for menstrual cups, uh, menstrual underwear, uh, period products, and, uh, and they are creating kind of a new cottage industry, which has pushed the large companies to change their, the, the way they market products and the way they, and the way they produce products to some extent. Um, social enterprise period, those companies are committed to plowing their, pro uh, their profits back into programs like the ones that Melissa described in India um, to supply products and not just products, but education and uh, discussions about clean, safe bathrooms and running water back into the communities. So while they, the, they make enough money to keep the business going, they, they promise and they 
um, put their, their profits back into the needs of the people of their communities. And this is happening, I mean, this is happening around the world. So women in Africa and Kenya, for example, start a business uh, which employs women to make reusable period products, pads, and employs women and then sells them at, at cost or less than cost because they'll work with a nonprofit to women and girls in their country. So there's this kind of empowerment around products as well. I don't think you can't fix period inequity, period poverty, just with products, but you can fix it when women take control of their lives, control of the means of production, control of the educational system, and are, are represented at all levels of government um, and, and other kinds of administrations as well. And it is happening, not fast enough, not fast enough to help girls who are afraid to go to school because they won't be able to concentrate on their test because they only have one pad for the whole day. Um, you know, so it's, it's not just the dramatic dropping out of school. It's the kind of niggling fear that you have all the time that you can't concentrate on your schoolwork, that you can't try out for the softball team, that you can't, can't, can't. Um, and with that message in your head, that really limits the opportunities um, and the possibilities for menstruators all over the world. And that's just it. Um, I think you hit on something, education. Um, and it has to start, it could start from the home, it could start from the school, it has to be in conjunction with both. Yes. But I think the schools do have a responsibility. They talk about puberty, usually, you know, the health classes are either, they're usually segmented, they're gender specific. And so the boys don't learn about the girls, the girls don't learn about the boys. But, you know, there's so much as women, um, whether binary, non-binary, non transgender, there's so much that, that needs to be known and not just by the young girls. Right, I mean, they exactly. live, there's a lot of single fathers. There's a lot of women who work and, and maybe the fathers are home. There's a lot of families where the father is the total head of the family and therefore whatever he says goes. And if he doesn't know anything, um, then, then that child is at a loss from the very, very beginning. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, and the shame, the stigma, the silence, all of that needs to be, um, be broken into. I think what you two are doing is, is starting to break into it. Can you tell us about the millennials uh, as opposed to uh, baby boomers and how are they dealing with this? Are they more open about it? I'm gonna let Melissa talk about this because she works with them, but we're also talking Gen Z. Right. I mean, Melissa, your students are are not millennials, right? Uh, Gen Z. I, you know, there's so many difference. <laughs> I I basically yeah. remember baby boomers, millennials, and then you know, I, I don't know what they in school. I, I'm not keeping up on all of this. So uh, I Melissa. think the, the biggest difference is possibly the attitude where I'll talk to students who are like, we just um screen the film for medical students. And, and um, one of them said it was an aha moment. I realized I'm, I put my tampon in my sleeve when I go to the restroom. I'm a medical student. I deal with, you know, blood and stuff all the time. And yet I can't walk with a pad out or a tampon going to the bathroom. And it's just a kind of shift of attitude. My high schoolers say the same thing. 
they're just unafraid to to talk about their period. And I think this is a huge shift. I tell a story that um, my daughter, when we were working on the pad project together, she wanted to um, talk about the pad project at an all school assembly. And I discouraged her because I thought that would be so embarrassing that she would be made fun of. I couldn't imagine it. I thought it would be horrible. And even though I know we have a progressive school and even though I was working on the documentary at the time, um, but like most teenagers, she ignored me entirely. And she went ahead and she she talked about it to an assembly with boys and girls. And she she says, the, the guy she has a crush on said, dude, did she just talk about her period? That's so cool. <laughs> I think that that people are readier to accept this than, than we give them credit for, and younger people are readier. Yep, and the, and the statistics seem to uh, support that. There are some, uh, there are a few studies, there's not a lot of studies about this stuff, but there are some studies that show that there's even a shift between millennials and Gen Z about seeing this as perfectly normal and that they're willing to talk about it with people of all genders, and there's much less shame, there's much less fear around it for them. I think that has to do with a couple, three generations of women um, being in the public, public eye, speaking out, um, not being quiet about injustices of all different kinds and identifying as, uh, as a menstruator with others. And you, know, be, you can really put yourself in someone else's shoes when you think about, um, for example, there was a terrible story about um, when we were putting children in cages at the Southern border, one young teenager bled through her clothes and couldn't get anybody to help her take a shower, get a new pair of clothes, get a new pair of pants or a, or a pad, much less another pad. And I think everybody who, everybody who menstruates who heard that story could feel it right here because everybody knows the feeling of, oh my gosh, what, how am I going to take care of this? And this was the most extreme example. And it felt like such an outrage to her dignity and to all of our dignity that, um, and the fact that that story got reported and had traction had a lot to do with female reporters and editors as well, um, who saw this as uh, worthy of attention. So it is changing, it is changing. And we are, and if, and if you tell uh, a 13 year old or 14 year old, you can't do something, as Melissa just said, what, he said, what do you mean that I'm supposed to hide? What do you mean I can't talk about this? We talk about everything else, we're gonna talk about periods at the dinner table. And I think actually, as you mentioned, it has to start at home. And I want to make a pitch for people to be more open about it with their, with their families, with their kids, um, and that it's not a secret, whether you have sons or daughters or non-binary exactly. kids or non-binary people at the table, that it is a subject for conversation. Um, and you don't have to talk about the nuts and bolts. You can talk about the politics. You can talk about the tampon tax. You can talk about all these other parts that fit together that create uh, an an injustice and an unfair disadvantage. A total unfair disadvantage and the stigma and the shame that that has been out there and the fact that people need to be taught from the very you know onset to listen to their bodies that not everyone is the same. Some have awful um, you know consequences of, of having uh, you know during the time that they're menstruating. Um, where, you know, the cramping is, is horrible. The bleeding is heavier than, you know, at other times. So, you know, they need to be taught that, 
this is not uncommon. There's nothing specifically wrong with you. Or if something is not the same as it's always been, that maybe there is something you need to talk out and not be ashamed of what's going on with your body. You start having conversations with people about menstruation. And I was walking with a friend the other day and tell, we were talking about the book. And she said um, she had horrible endometriosis, horrible pain for most of her life. And it was undiagnosed. Her daughter had it that, and they immediately took care of it. She had surgery as a young girl and she didn't have to go through the pain that her mother went through for years, for years and years until she finally had a, a physician who listened to the pain and understood that this was not normal. And the medical world has a lot, has a long way to go yes, they do. Um, to understanding that menstruation is a vital sign like blood pressure, that when you have someone in your office who is a menstruator, you need to talk about how is it going? How's the pain? Can you manage? Has it changed? Do you have any questions? All of those things that you ask about other parts of the body should be part of this, should be also be part of your, your medical record and your medical interactions. And for the longest time, um, there were only male gynecologists. <laughs> and you know people don't understand because as much as they might study in medical school, they haven't gone through it. And you can be assured that maybe recently things are changed as to the scope of what they're learning, but it wasn't something that they, that, that was really um, uppermost in their minds to talk about how women feel and the differences between women. Also for women of color, there are very, very few, very few. Um, gynecologists who are women of color that it's, it's a tiny percent of the, the possibility that you're going to, if you walk into the gynecologist's office, that you're going to see somebody who looks like you is extremely low. So this continues, this continues. It's, uh, as you said, there's things that are getting better, but there are things that need to get better that have to be looked at as, you know, menstruators are, it's a very essential part of of evolution and, and humanity. Uh, we weren't around, uh, we wouldn't have humans anymore. Uh, you know, right. we're so, we're so, we're, there's so much we're supposed to do, but we're locked into these little profiles. We're locked into the PMS, we're locked into the, oh, please, the, the cramp, the, this, they, they give us all of these um, words that are supposed to describe who we are when they really have not looked into or heard because so many have not spoken about it. You uh, know, the, the movie, I just want to put a plug in for the film because go ahead. how many people have seen it, Melissa? How many? I mean, the, 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 oh my the exposure has been huge. And it's how many conversations has it started, Melissa? So many. I mean, I think um, we know that about close to 20 million people have seen the film. Um, Anita knows that at the morning after Oscar, my, my emails were coming in so fast from all over the world, everybody wanting to tell um, the story of what happened uh, when they didn't have access to products on their period and uh, communities wanting a pad machine, everyone. And we've been talking about some of the um, implications like tampon tax, other things, uh, products in schools. And I should say that, that I didn't become aware of how 
rampant period poverty is in the United States to the degree that um, women are having to trade sexual favors for money just to buy products. Um, we get a lot of reports of that. There are so many things happening all over the world, including in the US that um, equal access to uh, menstrual health in whatever way that comes would would address. So it's it's larger than than I even realized sort of going into it. Well, as far as I'm concerned, uh, that um, documentary should be seen um, <laughs> should be something that is mandated <laughs> in the schools in a an assembly, not just in one classroom, but they really should do something about it and it, it should be seen. And then of course the book um, just expands on it so much. <laughs> yes, period, end of <laughs> sentence is, is something else that should be mandatory reading because it, it will educate so many people and I just want to say that one of the letters that you got, uh, Melissa, that I saw, I got some of the, they shared some emails with me. Some girl from, I believe it was North Carolina, saw the documentary and she said, um, I want to show this to my school. How can I get a, you know, Netflix, it's still on Netflix. You can still watch it. Um, she, how do I show this in my school? I want to show it to everybody in the school and I want to raise money to get you a, another pad project. So that, there you have the kind of initiative of a, of, another high school student in another part of the country saying what this can't this can't stand i have to do something and so Absolutely. that's the power of media i think you just yeah, nailed it we had another student who um watched the film was so inspired because she had um gone to her school nurse for products and she learned that her school nurse had been paying for extra products in her nurse's office out of her own money, God bless her. So she had been spending, you know, $200 over the course of, I don't know how much time, so she would always have products. So this lovely student um, did a small fundraiser where she was able to raise something like five or $600 just for the nurse so that the nurse could have product throughout the year to give to her students. It's amazing. and and. I think that what the two of you are doing and getting this word out and getting the, you know, not just the word, but the information out, educating people, taking away the stigma, talking about the fact that there is period poverty, um, that this is something that is so, so necessary. So I, I for one, thank you for coming on today. Um, I, as you said, the documentary can be found on Netflix and hopefully will be able to be seen in schools. Uh, the book, period, end of sentence, can be found in, um, in independent bookstores and of course, you know, online. But in the meantime, why don't you gals tell me, Melissa, where can people find out more about you? www.thepathproject.org. Uh, melissaburton.com. Those two websites, you can find all the information you want to know to be an advocate for menstrual justice. And Zanita? Oh, um, my website is anitadiamond.com and, um, 
and that includes information about the new book as well as uh, my other my other work, which includes fiction and nonfiction. Um, this is this is my most recent uh, effort, and I'm really proud to be associated with the Pad Project and with this um, real change in in world culture. Well, that's it, and that's what we're looking for. So ladies, I thank you for moving thank this along. Um, what you're doing is, is beyond necessary. <laughs> thank you for having us, thank you. Thank you for this great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Join me next week when I talk to another extraordinary, inspiring woman. This has been a Life of Prey production.